our Lord, we really are grateful for your word this morning. We're grateful that you have spoken to us through your word. And, and as we uh, take time right now to sit under your word, would you teach us from your word? We're grateful that the, the same spirit who inspired men to write down these words dwells within us. And he is able to help us understand what is spoken and help us to figure out how these things apply to our lives and help us to actually do what it says and not simply be hearers. And so we are dependent on the Holy Spirit of God to do all of these things for us. We're asking and we're praying, Lord, would you actually do those things? And would you do them for us even now? We're asking in Jesus' name. Amen. So I imagine that uh, many of you, just like me, have been following along with the, the presidential election, right? I'm guessing that you probably have watched the debate. I think there was a debate on last night as well. I missed that one. But I have been sort of following religiously with this whole thing. It's probably some of the most entertaining stuff that's on television right now. Uh, it's very entertaining. Uh, I sort of compare it to um, uh, sort of like the tabloids that you see in the grocery stores right? Uh, you know, when you see these grocery stores, you know that these things are just uh, a bunch of nonsense, right? They're a bunch of lies, and, and it's a bunch of embellishment and accusations. But when you're standing in line, kind of uh, waiting to pay for something, it's almost like you can't help but look at the tabloids, right? And see what it says. Like, Oprah had alien babies? Like, are we sure? Is that right? Like, you know, like, and, and you kind of look at them. And I feel like that's what the, the debates have felt like for me. I mean, so much of it is just plain nonsense, but I just can't help but watch. But when you sort through all of this nonsense, there are actually, thankfully, some elements that are really insightful and, and, and some things that help us to learn some more about these people. Like, I'm always intrigued uh, when a candidate talks about what they're going to do within the first 24 hours of becoming president. Right? You've probably heard people talk about that before. A candidate will say, you know, on my first day in office, I will do this. Like, for example, uh, Donald Trump, he says, if I were to become president, he says, within the first 24 hours of becoming the president, that I would seal up all the borders, right? I would build that wall. That wall will come up in those 24 hours, and no more illegal immigrants will come into our country. Or take, for example, Bernie Sanders, right? He says within the first day of being president, he's going to appoint a committee that will investigate the crimes that are happening on Wall Street. And he'll finally make these lawbreakers accountable. I mean, all of that, right, within the first 24 hours of being president. It's almost impossible as you're hearing them, but we do. And you know, I think the reason why we're so intrigued by these day one statements is this. It's because... What they do on day one is meant to sort of show you the trajectory of their presidency, right? I guess what they're saying is this. You know, what I'm about on day one will be exactly what I'm about on day 100 and is exactly what I'm going to be about on day 1,000 as well. Now, when we're talking about politicians, we know that this may not always end up being true, but it's sort of the reason why we're interested in learning about this day one that they talk about so much. Well, interestingly enough, what we're looking at this morning is actually day one of Jesus in office, right? Now, obviously, he's not the, the president of the United States. Instead, he comes as the king. Now, last year, if you were here, you heard Pastor Jay preach through Mark chapter 1. He preached 14 and 15. 
And you heard Jesus say, listen, the kingdom of God is at hand. That Jesus has come to establish his kingdom. What does that mean? The idea there is this, the breaking in of the rule and reign of, of God here on earth. Where we'll actually start seeing God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Just like we pray. Well, it turns out that not only is God's kingdom here, but Jesus is actually the very king of this kingdom as well. And so, after being sworn into office by John the Baptist at his baptism, and then going into the wilderness and, and facing his greatest critic, Satan, we see Jesus now on the first day of his job. And it's like all eyes are fixed on him to see what will be this first move that he makes? And that's what we're looking at this morning. That's what Kevin read to us. It's verses 16 to 20. We're peering at the first 24 hours of Jesus being in office. And what you'll see is this. That what Jesus was about on day one is exactly what he will be about on day 100. And is exactly what he is about 2,000 years later as well. Hear that. What Jesus is about on day one is exactly what he'll be about in day 100 and is exactly what he will be about 2,000 years later as well. You see, unlike politicians, right, Jesus' trajectory never changes. So the question is, what do we learn about Jesus and the kingdom from day one? I think we learn three things, and this is sort of the, the big idea of the sermon, Right? I think we learn three things from this passage about God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, one, we learn that Jesus calls people. Jesus calls people. Secondly, we learn that Jesus calls people to follow him. And then finally, we learn that Jesus calls people to call others to follow him. Real simple statements, right? Jesus calls people. Jesus calls people to follow him. And then finally, Jesus calls people to call others to follow him. And you see, this has been true of the kingdom from the first hour to this very hour. It's been true of the kingdom from the first hour to this very hour. And so we're going to take a look at this passage together. Open up with me to 16 to 20 of chapter 1 of Mark. It's found on page 836. It's a, there's Bibles in front of you. You should... Open one up and follow along. Page 836, we're starting with verse 16. It says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. You know, these, these five verses is going to describe sort of the, the first act that Jesus has as king. And what you see here is that he chooses disciples. But before we take a look at this story, I just want to give you a little bit of a setting, a background for what we're looking at here. If you remember, when we got started with Mark some weeks ago, uh, we found ourselves sort of uh, in the Jordan River area, 
right? That's where we started off because Jesus was in that Jordan area. That's where John the Baptist was. And Jesus had gone there to go get baptized by John. But now, now that Jesus has been baptized and he's ready to get started with his ministries, uh, he actually starts heading back north, right? And he goes closer to his hometown in this area called the Sea of Galilee. And, and you know, this, this area is important because this will actually be the same setting for almost the next eight chapters of Mark. We're going to be camping out in this grounds along the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee for some time. And so it's a significant place. And so the question is, what do we know about the Sea of Galilee? We know some things about it. Well, it says that, uh, the, the scholars say that, you know, the Sea of Galilee is about uh, 13 miles long. It's also about seven miles wide. And there was something like 16 or so different ports all along the Sea of Galilee. And I think it's important because what this is telling us is that, uh, you know, the Sea of Galilee, the, the fish from the Sea of Galilee was actually being exported all over the place. In fact, scholars say that this, this, uh, the fish from this sea was being sent as far north as Syria, and it was also being sent as far south as Egypt as well. In other words, this is sort of a, a commercial fishing site, right? Not just some sort of local operation, which probably means that Simon and Andrew, as well as James and John, these sets of brothers, are essentially small business uh, owners, right? They're not filthy rich, but they're also not poor. They're sort of somewhere in the middle. They're middle-class people. And remember, these are not just like, you know, brawny fishermen. They were also businessmen, right? They were strong and, and hardworking guys who were also business savvy. They not only caught a product, they knew how to sell their product and distribute their product as well. In fact, some scholars say that some of these guys were probably trilingual, right? They, they spoke Greek because that's what people there spoke. But because they were Jewish, they spoke Hebrew as well. And then on top of that, they would speak Aramaic. And you actually also learn that these men also had capital. In, in fact, in Luke 5, it says that Peter and Andrew owned their boat, right? Peter and Andrew owned their boat. So what that means is that they probably weren't working for someone, and they actually did well enough to be able to own their own equipment. In fact, when you look at Mark chapter 1, verse 20, it says that James and John even had employees, right? They had hired servants who worked for them. So all that to say this, right? These fishermen were a lot like us, right? These were everyday people with everyday jobs living their everyday life. They're almost just like us. And so almost immediately, the question we should be asking ourselves is this. Jesus has come now to establish the kingdom, the rule and the reign of God here on earth. And if, out of all the people that he could have possibly called to come and be a part of this kingdom, why does Jesus call these guys first, right? Why does that make sense? Well, you see, I think it sets us up for this first thought that we have. And that's this. You see, in God's kingdom, Jesus calls people. In God's kingdom, Jesus calls people. Now, if you're looking up on that screen, can we put that slide up on the screen for a second? There you go. What you'll notice is in that statement, 
two words are underlined. You see the word Jesus and the word people underlined. And it's because that statement can sort of be read in, in two different ways. The first way we can read that is that Jesus is the one who calls people. Or the second way we can read that is that Jesus calls people, right? Meaning every day, normal people to be a part of his kingdom. And so we'll unpack sort of both of those thoughts, but I want to give you a little bit of a context first, right? You know, if we, when we first read the story, especially if you've never read the story before, the series of events that are happening here seem really odd. Because what you're seeing here is Jesus is walking along the, the shores of Galilee, and he sees these fishermen standing out there, and he calls out to them, right? He calls out and says, follow me. And what do they do? It's not a trick question. What do they do? They follow, right? They, they drop everything that they have, and they follow him. And if you're just, just a, a casual observer, you should say, that's really odd, right? I mean, there was no questions asked, like, hey, where are we going? Right? There was no sense of, like, stranger danger, like, who are you? Why are you calling me? Right? They're not trying to run away. Instead, they drop everything that they have, and they go. That's what it seems. But you see, when we actually read a different gospel, we actually get a, a little bit of a clue as to what is going on here, and we see that there's actually more to what we're seeing here than what meets the eye. In fact, if you open up with me to page 886 of John chapter 1, we'll read sort of the, the background here a little bit. This is page 886, John chapter 1, starting at verse 35. It says this. It says, The next day again... John was standing with two of his disciples. Now, pause for a second. This is John the Baptist, right? Now, if you remember from last week, it said that Jesus began his ministry. He started this process of establishing the kingdom when John the Baptist got arrested. Do you remember that? It was John got arrested, and so Jesus took center stage, and he came to establish the kingdom. So what that means is that what we're reading here in John chapter 1 was sort of before the arresting of John, right? So this is what it says. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Now, pause again, right? When we say, when uh, John says they followed Jesus... This doesn't mean they followed him sort of like what a disciple would do for a master, right? Like, hey, I was, I'm a follower of John the Baptist now, but now that you said, behold, the Lamb of God, I'm going to move and go from being a, a disciple of John the Baptist to now a, a disciple of Jesus. No, this is sort of a, an exploratory following, right? They're sort of following him uh, to figure out what is going on. John the Baptist just said, behold the Lamb of God. we got to figure out more about this guy, what he's like, where is he staying, etc. Right? They're sort of creeping on him. Right? It's like Facebook creeping. This is the, the back-in-the-day Facebook creeping. So Jesus turned and looked at the creepers and following, following him and said to them, he says, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Again, very creepy. Right? Where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Again, what we're seeing here is not some sort of long-term commitment. It is an exploratory moment. They're just kind of figuring things out. 
Now, this is where we get a little bit of a clue of what's going on. Read with me. It says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. The same Andrew that we just read about in Mark 1. Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John, and you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So consider what just happened right there, okay? One of those two disciples that was following John the Baptist was actually Andrew, right? So John the Baptist says, listen, behold, the, the Lamb of God. So Andrew and his friend decide they're going to go and explore who is this man, what is he like? So they start following him. They follow him and follow him, and finally Jesus says, hey, what do you want? What are you, what are you doing? Why are you following me? And they go and have this conversation. They stay, decide to stay with him. They stay the night. I imagine they had conversation that evening. And then he wakes up, and he decides he's going to go back, and he's going to call his other brother. He's going to call his brother, Simon, right? Andrew goes and calls Simon. And Simon hears about this, and he says, well, listen, i got to check this out for myself, right? And so Simon now goes and meets with Jesus, and Jesus says, you are Simon, but now on, I'm going to call you Peter. So consider that, right? This scene that we're looking at in Mark chapter 1 is not as random as we would think, right? And that's because Andrew and Simon, now called Peter, have seen Jesus before, right? These two guys have interacted with him before to various lengths. And not only that, they also have some thoughts on who he is now as well. Andrew said, we have found the Messiah. They have a thought about who he is. In fact, something similar to this could probably be said of James and John as well. Now, why is that? Because if you look at Luke chapter 5, you don't have to open to it right now, but Luke chapter 5, 10, you can write this down. It says that Andrew and Peter are actually partners with James and John, right? That they're in this sort of, this, in this fishing business together. So imagine that, right? Imagine after going and following after Jesus and, and having this suspicion about the fact that he might be the Messiah, you imagine that maybe the four of them sat around together at some point and started talking. That maybe as they're getting started for the day at some point in the morning, or, or maybe as they're wrapping up their nets at the end of the day at some point, at some point, Andrew and Simon sits down with James and John and says, you won't believe what happened to us yesterday. You won't believe who we talked to yesterday or who we think this guy is. So again, it's not as random as it seems. And yet, we should still see it as being highly unusual. Here's why. You see, in that culture where there was a rabbi in your midst, the normal protocol would be for rabbis to be sought out uh, by students. So if you're a student and, and you're kind of looking around and you see this rabbi and he catches your intention and you follow his teaching and, and you're really interested in him, what you would see is that these students would go to the rabbi and say, listen, can I be your pupil, right? Uh, can you disciple me? But what you don't see is rabbis going out and trying to recruit people to come and follow them. You don't see that, right? It would be sort of beneath them to do so. And so that's why what we're seeing here is highly unusual because it's exactly what Jesus does. You see, from day one of Jesus being in office, it is Jesus who calls people. 
It is Jesus who calls people. This would be his M.O. He, he starts off with Andrew and Simon. And then he goes forward a little bit and he calls James and John. And if you kept reading in the next chapter, you see he calls Levi or Matthew, who's this tax collector. Or if you read the chapter after that, he says that he, re he calls seven more people to come and to be his disciples. In fact, a, a few years later, about three years later, Jesus and his disciples are sitting around having dinner, right? It's right before Jesus' death. And he's sitting around having dinner, and you see Jesus sort of recalling this very truth. And he says to them in John chapter 15, 16, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And you imagine, maybe they looked around at each other for a moment at that point, right? And remembered, you know, that's absolutely true. You know, Rabbi, why, why did you come after us? I mean, it should have been us coming after you. Why did you come after us? But you see, that was their story. Each of them. They were called by Jesus. And here's the thing. This wasn't just true on day one of God's kingdom. It was also true on day 100. And it's still true even 2,000 years from now or from then. Because Christian, isn't that your story as well? You didn't choose Jesus. He chose you. For every believer, that is their story. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, he says, God chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world. You see, you and I don't belong to the kingdom because we found God. We belong to the kingdom because he found us. We didn't go searching after God. He came searching after us, calling us to join his kingdom. I mean, who are we that he should do that for us? Why would he do that for us? But he did. He came after us through Jesus, who is the king of the kingdom. And what you realize there is that your experience is actually no different than that of these fishermen. Because that's the good news of the kingdom. From day one, it is Jesus who calls people. Well, guess what, right? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I hope that that could be really good news for you. Because you see, Christianity is, is highly unusual. In fact, it's, it's downright unique. This is why. Because you see, every other religion in the world, they tell you this. It says, this is what you need to do to get to God. Right? Every other religion, every other philosophy is teaching you, this is what you need to do to get to God. But you see, Christianity, on the other hand, tells us all about what God has done to get to us. But it's not even just that, right? I also want you to notice the type of people who belong to the kingdom. You know, if you're not a Christian, I, I don't know what you imagine Christians to be like. Maybe you imagine in your mind that they're supposed to look a certain way, or maybe they're supposed to act in a particular way, or they're supposed to belong to a particular class of people, or have a certain level of spirituality. But I hope that these examples of Simon and Andrew and James and John and even the examples of the people that are sitting right around you would be an encouragement to you today. 
Because you see, from day one, Jesus has been calling people, normal, everyday people, to come and belong to the kingdom. He's been calling fishermen and pharmacists. He's been calling techies and teachers. He calls scholars and secretaries. He calls moms and musicians, all types of people, everyday, normal people who may have nothing in common with each other but for one thing, that they are all sinners in need of a savior. Well, the good news is that our savior has come. He has come after us, come for us, normal, everyday people, so that we can belong to the kingdom. And so if you're not a Christian here this morning, I hope that that would be encouraging to you. I hope that you would see that you're a good fit for the kingdom, right? The kingdom belongs to people just like you. And I really do hope that you would even hear him calling you today. But what is the, the question is, what does he call us to? We'll look at uh, thoughts two and three, and these thoughts are much quicker. What does he call us to? Point two, it says, Jesus calls people to follow him. Jesus calls people to follow him. Consider the story again, right? He sees Simon and Andrew, and what does he say to them? Jesus said to them in verse 17, Mark 1, 17, he says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Or the same, same situation with James and John, right? The call and the reaction or the response are pretty much the same. Verse 20, it says, And immediately he, Jesus, called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. You know, it seems like a really simple point, what we're looking at right here, but I think it's a point that sometimes we often miss. You know, oftentimes if we were to ask people, you know, what is Christianity all about? I think we would hear some uh, random answers. Like maybe we'll hear something like, you know, Christianity is about, is, is about um, being a good person right? About being moral people, about doing what's right. Or maybe someone else will say, you know what? Being a Christian means something like what it looks like to be Republican, right? You believe in conservative things and, and you desire for conservative policies when it comes to your society. But what you see in this story is actually something completely different than any of those answers. Because you see, what Jesus is saying here is this, that being a Christian means simply following Christ. Being a Christian means following Christ. That's the call of the Christian to follow Jesus. So what does that look like? You know, if you were in Jesus' time and, and you were a student of a rabbi, if you were going to a rabbi and saying, hey, lead me, right, so I can follow, what a rabbi would essentially do is something like this. He would probably hand you the Torah or the, the book of the law. And he'll probably say something like, you know what, here, right, give yourself to this, right? Study this inside and out. I mean, do what it says. I mean, know it like the back of your hand. And the reason for that was because a pupil, his, his allegiance isn't ultimately to his rabbi. His allegiance is to the Torah, to the law. He wants to know and breathe and live out the Torah every single day of his life. But you see, what we're seeing here is something wholly different. You see, when Jesus comes to establish the kingdom, it's almost like Jesus has now become the textbook, right? If these disciples had a job description, it would almost be like it would only have one line on that sheet of paper. 
And that would be to follow Jesus. Give yourself to him. Study him inside and out. Listen to what he says. Do what he does. Become more like him. And you see, that's because what Jesus is doing here is something completely unique than what's been done. He's establishing the kingdom. He's forming a new community. And, and this community is ultimately not formed around the law, right? And it's not ultimately formed around a temple, or it's not uh, formed around a particular teaching. No, it's a, it's a community, it's a kingdom that's formed around a person. It's formed around the king of this kingdom. And that's because, you see, every law that was written in the scriptures was simply getting us ready for King Jesus. And every prophet who spoke in the scriptures was simply telling us about King Jesus. And every OT system that we saw in the scriptures was simply pointing us to King Jesus. And so, now that the king is here, why would we follow anyone or anything else? The king is here. And so the call is to follow Jesus, to give ourselves to him. And that's been the call from day one to even 2,000 years later. Can I go on a, on a bit of a tangent for a second? Would you allow me? I, I think this is why it's sort of incorrect and misinformed to say that, that Christianity is sort of like every other religion in the world, right? Some people say, you know, you know, all religions basically teach the same thing. But I think when people say that, they don't see how essential and how fundamental Christ is to Christianity. Because without him, there would be nothing for Christians to believe in. And you see, that's not true of other religions. Because Buddhists can be Buddhists without Buddha. Right? All they need is his teachings. And they can still be Buddhists. Or, or Hindus can be Hindus without Krishna. Because all you need to do is to be a good person and study what it says in the Gita. But you see, Christianity is centered around a person. It's centered around the person of, and work of Jesus. If you remove the king from Christianity, Christianity has nothing to stand on. It will absolutely come crashing down. Christianity is all about Jesus, and that's why we're called to follow him. Well, if you do choose to follow him, there's probably something you should notice, and we see it in verses 18 and 20. Read with me. So Simon and Andrew decide to follow Jesus, and it says in verse 18, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. Or when James and John decide to follow Jesus, in verse 20 it says, it immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. You see, there is... There's often a, a cost to following Jesus. Now, what I'm not saying is that if you follow Jesus, you'll have to give up your possessions. Or if you follow Jesus, you'll have to give up your family because what we see is actually the disciples don't even do that, right? If you keep reading down in chapter 1 in verse 29, you see that Peter and Andrew still actually own a home, right? They didn't give up their home. They didn't burn down their home. They still have a place to stay, or that James and John, if you read in the other Gospels or in the Gospels, see that they still have a relationship with their mother, right? They didn't say, hey, mom, I can't be with you any longer. I'm following Jesus. They still have a relationship with their mother. But I guess what I'm saying here is this. When you follow Jesus, 
what was true for the king may also become true for you. What was true for the king may also become true for you. You see, Jesus once said that no servant is greater than his master. So for you, if following Jesus means that you're going to be at odds with your family, what you should know is this, that the king himself had a family who thought he was out of his mind for doing what he was doing. Or for you, if following Jesus means giving up your possessions, you should know that the king himself had nothing while he was on earth, not even a place to lay his head. Or for you, if following Jesus means being ridiculed by others for believing the truth, well, then you should know that your king himself was mocked and ridiculed by many people, even though he was actually the truth. And so it's important to know that there will be a cost to following Jesus. Now, everyone's cost will not be the same, but thankfully, there is no cost that we can endure that our king himself has not known. And that's the promise. And that leads us to our final point. It's this, that Jesus calls people to call others to follow him. Jesus calls people to call others to follow him. Look at verse 17. And it says, And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. You see, not only is Jesus calling Simon and Andrew and then later on James and John to come and to follow him, he also calls them to become fishers of men. So the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean to be fishers of men? You see, the idea of God calling people to fish for people is actually something that's found in the Old Testament. And it's probably most clearly seen in Jeremiah 16. You can write this down, but it will be on the screen behind me. Look at Jeremiah 16, verse 16. It says, Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. But what's interesting about this verse that we're looking at here is the reason why God is sending out people to fish for people. And we get a clue for that in verse 17 and onward. This is what it says. It says, For my eyes are on all their ways. They're not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first, I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin, because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abomination. You see, the, the idea here in Jeremiah is this, that you're being sent out to catch sinners so that they can be judged. In Jeremiah, people are being sent out to fish for people so that they can be judged. You're fishing for people so that they can receive their deserved punishment. Now, when you take that and contrast it with what Jesus is calling his disciples to do, this idea of becoming fishers of men should be the most beautiful thing ever. Because you see, while fishing in Jeremiah was meant to bring people to judgment, Jesus' call to become fishers of men was to bring people out of judgment, not to give them what they deserved, so that they can be treated not as they deserve, to be shown mercy and grace and forgiveness instead. 
And you see, what Jesus is saying here is that the only way to escape God's judgment for the sin that we have committed is to actually follow Jesus. As we just sang earlier, he, he is our only hope. He is our only hope for mercy and forgiveness from sin. Because here's the thing, right? When the disciples follow Jesus, they'll notice that he doesn't stop walking. He doesn't stop walking until he reaches a cross. And on that cross, Jesus willingly laid down his life. And he took upon himself the, the punishment and the judgment that the world deserved to receive. And because he died on that cross, and because he was placed in a tomb, and because he rose again, the disciples are now able to fish for another reason, right? They're able to become fishers of men for a better reason. Not to bring people to judgment, but instead to help people escape the judgment of God in Christ. And you know, what was true on day one is still true 2,000 years later. Brothers and sisters, would you hear me? We, we get to fish for people. We get to fish for people so that they would escape the judgment of God. Do you hear that? We get the opportunity to fish for people so that they would escape the judgment of God. And we do so by telling them about our great king so that they could be forgiven of their sins and follow after him. You see, we get to call others to follow Christ just as Christ has called us to follow him. And so the question you should be asking yourself today, Christian, is who am I fishing for? Who do I get the chance today to fish for so that they would not receive the judgment that is deserving of them, but instead that they would receive the mercy and grace that is found in Christ Jesus? I want to make help you see something just quickly before we close. Something subtle in this verse 17. Look at, me, look at it with me again. It says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. I will make you become, that word become is there, fishers of men. You know, I know that all of us sort of feel inadequate when it comes to mission, right? Uh, we can probably think of a thousand reasons why we feel like, you know, we're not fit to tell people about Christ. Well, I hope that that word, that subtle word right there, become, would be a source of comfort for you. Because what that word tells us is that this process of becoming fishers of men isn't something that happens in an instant, right? You don't become fishers of men overnight. Instead, it's a gradual thing. It's a, it's a process. You're becoming fishers of men. In fact, I discovered something on Friday which I thought was just simply wonderful. You see, there is a scene in the book of Acts, right? So Jesus has now died and he resurrected and he's ascended into heaven. And now these very disciples are now apostles and they're trying to spread this wonderful gospel about the kingdom to the places all around them. And there's this scene in Acts where Peter and John are standing before angry religious leaders, right? It's in Acts chapter 4. You can write it down. 
And they're standing before these, these religious leaders, and they're angry because this gospel is sort of shaking up Jerusalem. It's causing a disturbance in Jerusalem, right? And so they call Peter and John to come before them and to kind of give an explanation as to what is going on here. Why is this happening? And what you see is that they stand there and they speak boldly about Jesus before these religious leaders, about these men. And the response of these leaders, to me, is amazing. This is Acts 4.13. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You see, Peter and John are standing before these religious leaders, and the thing that comes to their mind is that these are uneducated, common men. Remember, this is Peter and John that we just talked about in, in Mark 1, right? And so when they say uneducated, it doesn't mean that they're unintelligent, right? These are fishermen and businessmen. They were savvy. Instead, what it means is that these are people who were not trained in rabbinic schools, right? They didn't formally learn the Torah. They didn't sit in theology classes. And so these religious leaders are sitting there, and they're astonished at what is coming out of their mouths, and the only way that they can make sense of it is to realize one thing, that they had been with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, do you want to be fishers of men? You really can do so. And it doesn't require you to go to seminary and get an MDiv or to become a scholar. While all of those things are great, what it does require is for you to follow Jesus. That's what it takes. Following Jesus is all it takes for you to become a fisher of men. I hope that's an encouragement to you this morning. You are becoming fishers of men. And the way to do so is by following Jesus. Because you see, Jesus calls everyday normal people like you and me, to follow him so that we can also call others to do the same. And that's what Jesus has been doing since day one. That's what he did in day 100. And that's what he's still doing 2,000 years later. Let's pray.